This is an AMI podcast. You're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast with Chef Mary Mammoliti. Hey guys, it's me, Mary Mammoliti. And today we're going to be doing things a little differently on the Kitchen Confession Podcast. We're chatting with Matt Agnew, our producer and editor. He's going to be bringing us headlines from the world of food and agriculture. But before we do that, let me take a bit of time to remind you all of the recipes and brands you can find on kitchenconfession.com, like my latest travel guide and foodie finds of the Azores. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Well, hi. I'm doing great. Thanks. Well, finally, I get, I, get to, I get you on. I know. I'm on the business end of the microphone today. <laughs> Always. All right. Down to business. You've got some articles for us today. What do you have? Yeah, absolutely. So this first one uh, is really interesting. I don't know how often you think of like farming and farm technology, um, but like uh, there's a lot of stuff that you know, it, a lot of tech that has its roots in the farms like across the country, right? Like you got GPS uh, technology, and you've got um, like autonomous ve- vehicle technology, of of course, mm-hmm. um, already in use. But artificial intelligence is coming to farms. What? Yeah. So there's uh, at a recent competition at Wageningen University in Research, that's in the Netherlands, um, they challenged teams to create an artificial intelligence greenhouse system. So there were five teams with uh, team members from nine different countries, mm-hmm. um, and they got 96 square meters to work with. Um, but the real challenge was they only had one day to set up the lighting, the sensors, the webcams, all the stuff that they were going to need to run the challenge from Redmond, Washington it, in the U.S. 5,000 yeah, 5, kilometers away from the greenhouse. Okay. Right. So if you forgot to turn on your tap, you're kind of pooched. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I don't get this. I'm still so confused by it. Yeah. Okay. So... Uh, Canada's team, Team Sonoma, was uh, a collaboration between AgriFood Canada. It's a branch of the, the government. Um, and they, of course, were bringing the uh, crop physiology and the energy conservation knowledge um, and Microsoft research, of course, with the artificial intelligence uh, expertise. So um, they won the competition mm-hmm. with a high wire cucumber production system. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but go ahead. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, cucumbers, maybe not the mo- most exciting thing, but... Um, <laughs> I was waiting for like just something really, and then just cucumbers. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, all right. It's, well, we'll give them that. It's, it's super complicated, right? So go with an easy crop. I right, guess. true, true. Okay. Right. Okay, so um, Dr. Xiuming Hao, so he's an expert on crop physiology and energy conservation. Um, he said that, uh, quote, we went with a high-yield, high-density, uh, and high-lighting system because with high plant density, you can obtain high yield, but sometimes you get poor quality later on. Mm-hmm. But with the strong lighting, and they, they had four months to do this, so um, says, I knew we'd be okay. Plus, electricity is less expensive in the Netherlands than it is in Canada. So the whole um, competition was essentially based on uh, net value. So you take your gross output um, and subtract uh, everything you put into it. So all your equipment and your monitoring costs, um, your water, your electricity, all that kind of stuff. Okay, and this was all monitored and executed from here. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the the, um, the webcams and uh, the sensors and all that kind of stuff um, was monitored by the artificial intelligence system. So it would monitor it 24-7. Okay. It would constantly adjust the humidity, the light, the temperature, CO2 levels even. Um, and then it would take uh, photos to be reviewed by the team so they could constantly kind of tweak what the artificial intelligence system was doing with it. And Dr. Howe, every morning, would sift through over 300 photos Every morning, wow. the AI optimizer uh, was was taken for for revision. Three hundred photos, yeah, of cucumbers. No, okay. Do you think you scroll through more than three hundred photos before noon on Instagram? Oh, easy, easy. I yeah. just I just wonder if like it's three hundred <laughs> photos not, a lot to go through in the morning. But or? like, I, well, I mean, they're cucumbers. <laughs> really, what's happening? Nothing. Just it's a cucumber. <laughs> Well, so every morning, so he's, he's sifting through 300 photos instead of going on Instagram. Um, and it, so he's, he's checking for the climate and the plant growth. And I love how you keep yield. on throwing in that Instagram. I'm just saying, because we've talked about this before. Yeah, and you know that's an accusation because I'm <laughs> yeah. not on Instagram. Yeah, I know so. that. Okay, just <laughs> as long as you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, so he'd, he'd go through and, and uh, check uh, climate, plant growth, cucumber yield, and the, and the grade, you know, the quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would tweak the... Um, the settings of the artificial intelligence optimizer, so it could continue, um, you know, twenty four seven adjusting all those uh, those factors to keep everything growing healthy. Okay, so now they've got this; they've won the award. This was for what? Are they planning to? What are they planning to do with this? Well, Did I mean, I, I think I think the ultimate goal is is looking at how artificial intelligence can manage uh, to get higher higher crop yields because of course um population densities are higher than they ever have been urban sprawl is is wiping out a lot of farmland and and so they're just looking for uh um a way so like obviously because people can't monitor stuff 24 7 but the ai can and, and constantly make those little tweaks that lead to higher quality and higher yield so you, you you get more out of the available farm space um, and it's it's in an industrial setting as well. So they're talking about that high wire cucumber system. Um, it's it's a way to get a greater density of farming area out of you know a same footprint, right? Now, could this potentially eliminate the farmer? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I don't think that it eliminates the farmer per se, but I, I think it changes the role of the farmer maybe a little bit. Hmm. I could see. Yeah. Uh, well, because there has to be some type of human interaction with that. Uh, yeah, for sure. Well, and that's where you see um, Dr. Howe, you know, he's, he's sifting through all the uh, um, the photos to, to make sure that the AI is making the adjustments properly. So, I mean, you've got that monitoring role. And of course, you know, the, the greenhouse doesn't set itself up. Um, you know, it, it definitely needs the, uh, um, you know, the farmers and the technicians. And um, there's there's definitely lots of jobs still in this kind of system, I would imagine. But I think, you know, cucumbers is obviously a pretty simple one to start with. But uh as it sort of evolves and they, they apply that kind of technology to some more complicated crops, um, it could definitely help with food sustainability because, I mean, even look at, um, uh, you know, the, the situation, I think, in the north of Canada um, where you can't get any fresh produce for less than an arm and a leg. Um, but if, if all this is done indoors in a, uh, uh, you know, really controlled environment, constantly monitored by AI, I mean, you might be able to get some more, um, you know, higher quality product, mm-hmm. less, you know, issues with sh- shipping and, you know, supply chain and that kind of thing into, uh, 
regions. And and then it, it, if it can still be way. monitored remotely, right? You know, yeah. this, this uh, uh, challenge took place 5,000 kilometers away. So, I mean, maybe you have your farming centers in the local communities where they need to be um, monitored from, you know, See, and maybe I have to try and change the way I look at this because I didn't think that. I didn't go that route. I didn't think of, you know, using this in areas where you can't grow an abundance of certain vegetables or, or whatnot. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think the most interesting part, I mean, aside from the AI, is just the, the distance um, monitoring, right? Yeah. So anyway, I thought it was super cool. I mean, um, I don't know. Have you ever been to Disney? Yes. If you, um, I don't know if you know of uh, the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland, right? I got hit on by Goofy there, but anyway, that's another story oh. for another day. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, a little less scary than that. Um, there's a ride there, and I don't know if I'm like a bit of a nerd for loving this one. It's it's not like the most exciting ride by Disney standards, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's a really cool um, little little ride, and it's air conditioned. It's like it's like the the ride you get away from the heat from you know in the mm-hmm. middle of your busy day. Um, it's called Living with the Land. It's like a really interesting um, exhibit on like experimental farming techniques. So you get in this little raft and it floats you down this like little river through like you know one of those lighted Disney dioramas of um, you know the the history of I guess food production. Mm-hmm. Um, you know all the way from like hunter gatherer to uh, you know, present day. And then you kind of come through into this uh, super high tech greenhouse, which is, um, you know, all the latest cutting edge stuff that the Disney Epcot scientists are working on. And there's like uh, genetically modified stuff. And there's, you know, actually these. Uh, See, these that genetically modified stuff, stuff just in, it gets me a little bit. Like it's just, it, it freaks me out. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Flowers. I, I understand. <laughs> I understand why some people think that, but I mean, sometimes genetically modified is as simple a thing as you know making a crop of corn more resistant to disease, right? No, I should really start looking at things the opposite side. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like I hear genetically modified, I think of Frankenstein flowers. I know. Uh, you it's, know. it's super villainized in, in media, but yeah. So, um, there, there are some some good things to it, I, I think. But it, anyway, I mean, the whole thing is just that it's it's all experimental, right? You know, maybe it's not the best to be using right now, but you know, scientists are working on it. So, um, yeah, there's lots of interesting things they're doing, including hydroponics, and you know, all kind of working towards that, you know, high yield, high density uh, production for more sustainable um, food production. I just now, think are these all in like in the test process? Yeah, test stages, yeah, right? Yeah, it's kind of like why it's in that like uh, high tech exhibit uh, rather than um, I'm, I'm sure they have like other production uh, fields going at the same time, but uh, uh, they're just showing off the, the latest and greatest, I guess. Of course. Yeah. I would. So moving on to our next article. Um, this one I thought was really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit it's a little bit older in the headlines, I think, but I wanted to bring it up because I don't think a lot of people have heard about it. Um, yeast is making headlines in beer and booze come on (laughs) yeah so this was super super crazy archaeologists um in a couple of different areas um but uh they've had uh digs and and findings that have led to some interesting experiments in booze and bread because they've found yeast samples and been able to extract them um from a couple of different uh areas in in and around egypt um the first one came from uh, bread that was found preserved in a mortuary temple for Pharaoh 
Mentuotep II. Stop it. Yeah. It You're was like kidding. preserved bread. I don't know how it lasted that long, so don't ask me. Um, but uh, no yeah. way. Yeah, they resurrected this uh, um, bread sample. Uh, so weirdly enough, this was uh, this particular one. Uh, a guy by the name of Seamus Blackley, um, who is the creator of uh, the original Xbox, which is a gaming platform. He's also a physicist and a self-professed bread nerd. Didn't really know that there was. Uh, such a you know nerd culture around mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but there so is. specifically but there is okay and yeah. i'll explain to you why. yeah because i was just at a family picnic this sunday mm-hmm. and of course we're italian huge family picnic sure um and my cousin who i love dearly he grow he grows his own yeast so he makes the sourdough that is unbelievable really yes yes and his yeast is now three years old and he's cultivated this from wild yeast cultures? Yes. Okay, so I'm just going to share this because this is only something I've learned recently because I'm, I'm kind of into home brewing um, a little bit. So I've, I've been learning a lot about yeast recently. Okay, talk to um, me. And so Teach I've, me your so ways. For the listener, mm-hmm. uh, yeast is like it's a single cell organism and it consumes sugar and it uh, gives off CO2 and alcohol. So that's why it's used in, in uh, brewing and in baking. Um, but wild yeast can be found like anywhere. So if, if you had like, um, you know, a wild yeast brew is what I've been reading on some forums, mm-hmm. um, is when you essentially, you just like mix up your, your grape mash or whatever is your, your, uh, your beer wort. Um, and you kind of leave it open. I've seen some people cover it with like linen or something like that, something mm-hmm. permeable by air, but, but you got to mix it up and, and aerate it every day so that there's enough oxygen for the yeast to get going. But there's, there's yeast anywhere. It'll just kind of float in. And, you know, when you, when you harvest the grapes out of the uh, vineyard or whatever, there's, there's already like, you know, yeast organisms on all this stuff and it will find its way in through the air and that kind of thing. So cultivating yeast starts by just, you know, having access to sugar, I guess, mm-hmm. and providing the right kind of environment for it. So your cousin mm-hmm. uh, has cultivated his own like strain of yeast that started from like a wild yeast sample, I guess, right? I think so. He was telling me, but I was so excited that he was actually, he was three years old <laughs> and that I had this piece of bread like literally hanging out of my mouth while he was telling me. And I couldn't think of anything because it was just... focused on the sourdough. Yeah, right? it was so good. <laughs> well, that's, that's really interesting. So uh, Seamus Blackley um, teamed up with a biologist from the University of Iowa and um, an archaeologist, um, an Egyptologist also from... Uh, University of Queensland mm-hmm. in Australia. And so together they were able to find a way for uh, Mr. Blackley to extract the yeast strain um, without without damaging it. Um, and he, he then used it to uh, um, create his own uh, sourdough bread. And he described it as um, having a crumb that is light and airy and the aroma and flavor incredible. Something like what I ate. Yeah. Well, okay, so, so I, I need to, how would they, so did they find, look, I'm so, I'm speechless. I'm fumbling <laughs> over my own words because I can't believe they found this yeast. Yeah. So was it literally a piece of bread or was it? It. The article from the New York Times mentions that it was um, uh, a preserved sample of bread from the mortuary temple. So I, I don't know what that looks like. I find it hard to believe that a piece of like an actual piece of bread lasted for millennia but 
Um, it, maybe this, this second article that I have um, about the East uh, in a separate uh, archaeological finding, um, Israeli researchers discovered um, shards of ancient jugs likely to be either containers for bread or uh, mead or mm. beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the porous um, uh, nature of the, of the uh, ceramic allowed... Um, like the little little spaces for the yeast to uh, kind of survive, little pockets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeast, uh, if it loses access to food, it can it can go dormant instead of um, dying off. So some yeast samples were able to kind of take uh, shelter in these little pores of the um, of the pottery and uh, and survive for over five thousand years. That's crazy to me. Yeah, and so the the uh, Israeli researchers used their uh, samples to um, create. They don't call it beer, but um, it's they called it an aromatic and flavorful drink with six percent alcohol content. <laughs> yeah, so it it sounds like this, uh, you know, these ancient yeast uh, samples are producing some really incredible stuff. They are okay. So yeast is also is yeast the base of every beer? No. Uh, yeah, and in, in every alcoholic, um, every beverage. alcoholic beverage, yeah, I yeah, should it's, say, it's because it, it consumes the sugar and then it, it gives you the alcohol. So, I mean, different strains of yeast will have different tolerances to alcohol, and that's where you get difference between uh, beer and wine and um, all that kind of stuff. There's there's something called turbo yeast that's used in uh, mm-hmm. production for spirits because it, it has such a like a higher tolerance to alcohol so you can get it up pretty high before you even start distilling it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So if you, if you give it more sugar than it has alcohol tolerance, it will produce so much alcohol that it kills itself off. And then, um, that's, you know, that's where you get like 12% wine or something like that. Yeah, right? yeah. It just, it, it kind of kills itself off and then you can't produce any more. And okay. And now for the question that everyone wants answered, where can we get a slice of the sourdough? <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's a good question. I imagine it would be very hard to come by. Probably really expensive if you wanted your piece of the uh, millennia mm-hmm. sourdough. I'll check eBay. <laughs> so far, it sounds like it's fairly exclusive to uh, Mr. Blackley and his team of slides. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. What do we got next? Uh, so next up, we've got Beyond the Meat Burgers have been in the headlines for the last uh, couple of weeks, couple of months. Uh, people are super obsessed with the uh, plant-based alternative to burgers. Mm-hmm. Um, in an article from the CBC, um, they're calling into question whether or not um, the Beyond, uh, Beyond Meat Burger uh, is, as marketed, a, a better option for you. Um, Food scientist Ben Bohr says when you're comparing a Beyond uh, Beyond Burger with beef, uh, the nutritional composition, it's, it's pretty similar. Um, uh, Beyond Patty has 270 calories, uh, 5 grams of saturated fat, and 390 milligrams of sodium. Mm-hmm. In comparison um, with Walmart's Great Value Beef Burger. Oh, come on. Walmart they compare it to? Walmart's Burger. Of all the burgers the out there. Um, But it's got 30 fewer calories um, and two more grams of saturated fat, but it actually has 300 milligrams uh, less of sodium because it's not pre-seasoned like the Beyond Patty. Um, Though it should be noted that A&W's version, uh, if you get it there, um, is seasoned a little bit more all the way up to a cool 
1,110 milligrams of sodium. Good so, Lord, I'm swelling. I mean, it really depends, I think, where you're getting it uh, and, and what kind of product you're getting it as part of or what you're doing with it yourself, those, those take-home ones that you can get. Um, but uh, Toronto-based dietitian and nutritionist uh, by the name of Rosie Schwartz, she says, when Health Canada says we should be choosing more plant-based protein alternatives, I believe they're talking about whole foods. They're not talking about ultra-processed foods. Exactly. So, I mean, I have to agree with that a little bit. I mean, anything that you're getting that's prepackaged, um, you know, it's just it's just not the same as, as putting it together uh, at home from scratch where you can control what's going in there, right? But let's face it. I mean, anything plant-based, you do have to add a lot of seasoning to it in order to kind of give you that flavoring you're looking for. Have you tried it? You know what? I haven't had a chance to try it yet, but I'm definitely going to go and and I want to compare one from like a place like A&W versus one that you throw on your own grill. I did. Yeah? And what do you I think? I did. So I purchased my own patties, the um, Beyond the Meat patties, and then I went and I, pr- I tried the A&W burger. Granted, they're both very good, mm-hmm. but you do taste a lot more... Um, seasonings in the A&W burger than you do in the one that you purchased packaged, prepackaged. Would you have either of them again? I would probably, I, I would, I would, but it's not something that I'm going to say, oh, I have to have it. Um, sure. Yeah. It's not like a, like, you know, a craving, right? Right. So there are a lot of things that I do crave. Yeah. This would not be one of them, but it is good. So if you're looking to reduce the amount of red meat, your meat consumption, and you right. want to start moving over to plant-based. This is a great way to, to start moving over. Definitely. I, and I think you had a great conversation with uh, Hannah Sundarani of Two Spoons. I think that was from uh, our July 24th episode. You guys really got into conversation about mm-hmm. using uh, the, the Beyond Meat stuff. Um, I know that's the brand, but there's other brands yeah. um, out there as well, but uh, using um, the ground beef alternatives. So um, but I think what you're kind of hitting on there that's interesting is, is replacing uh, beef, which brings us to the Blended Burger Project is, uh, is a really interesting um, initiative because beef, as we know and have heard, um, has a big carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's an initiative to replace 30% of the beef in a traditional burger with uh, mushrooms hmm. or uh, other other substitutes, not for uh, flavor, not for you know anything mm-hmm, other mm-hmm. really than just helping to reduce the carbon footprint um, of of beef. So, in doing this, it would save as many emissions as taking 2.3 million cars off the road, and conserve as much water as 2.6 million Americans use uh, at home each year. That's incredible. I'm just sure by making that gonna have an issue with of but. course of course i mean you're gonna piss off someone down the road no matter what we do whenever you try to make a change um it's gonna be bothering someone but in this case i, I didn't realize the impact that that would have just by swapping out 30 percent. i'm into making my own burgers for the grill or something like that if i'm feeling fancy but like i also totally will go to costco and just get like a sleeve of their you know standard burger and if that was made up of 30 mm-hmm. percent mushrooms i probably wouldn't know or care because those are ones that i'm just slapping on the grill anyway right right have you done the whole portobello burger i have and 
I do enjoy it. I will admit to being really terrible because I at it. I'm, I, I've not made a really good one. I've made like passable ones, but I treat the portobello on the grill as if it were a burger. And like, I remember about it as often as I would if I was taking care of a burger on the grill. Right, right. And so I've come out to some really scorched mushrooms in the past. <laughs> <laughs> so my first couple experiences, maybe not so great. Um, I do really love uh, throwing a portobello on top of a traditional burger. And that's where I was going to go with it. Yeah. That's good. I mean, even if you don't, you could take away the bun. I couldn't care less. But if you put that portobello on top of a burger, that's a good time. Mm -hmm. Or stuff the portobello and then put the burger on top and I'm drooling. For sure. There's a lot of great combinations you can do with that. Really cool combinations. I I enjoy it with a burger and maybe if I had some mushrooms in the fridge and was out of a burger, I wouldn't like turn my nose up at it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to try the mushroom substitution. I mean, you would probably have to cook that up beforehand, release some of the water. I think so, yeah. That would make a big difference. I like this. I like this. I've learned a lot. Yeah, some pretty cool and uh, crazy headlines from you know, food technology and, uh, and agriculture. So what's, uh, what's going on in your kitchen this week? My kitchen. My kitchen, we oh, loved it. I don't know if you've heard of zucchini blossoms. Squash blossoms, looked. zucchini blossoms. Um, I just picked a whole bunch of them. Do you use that in your cooking or just like as a garnish? In my cooking. That's the star of the oh, dish. Wow. Really? Yes. I've never heard yes, of that. Yes, I grew up on these. And when it was around during the summer, whenever we can get our hands on any of them, we would just, everyone would just kind of fight for them because they we use them in, we make zucchini fritters mm-hmm. with uh, zucchini and the, the uh, blossoms. Really? So what's cool about the blossom, I know people are probably thinking, oh my God, you're eating flowers. But yeah, I am. But you can. There are edible flowers. But this one here, what's really neat about it is the actual blossom tastes like zucchini. So it's got a milder taste. It's not as strong. Right. And do you you throw it in with the batch like raw? Do you saute them up first or something? Definitely raw. I've heard of people salting them and, you know, kind of squeezing the water out slightly. I, I don't do any of that. I just take the whole flower as it is, the blossom as it is. I remove the inside and the bottom where the stem actually connects. And then you're left with just the petal, the petals. Oh, I see. Yeah. And then you just, you honestly chop that up roughly, give it a good chop, toss them into the bowl with your flour and water, um, some baking soda, baking powder, a couple of other ingredients, and then you just fry them. Yeah, and it just gives you that nice, subtle zucchini right. flavor. So it's not on the eat these to lose weight list, but they're really, <laughs> they're really good. They're really tasty. Um, I've put them in a pasta dish I made, um, which was inspired by a dish oh, that yeah. I had in Italy. And again, it's just sauteing them lightly. You don't need much to them. How about you? Never mind me. I know you enjoy <laughs> cooking. Uh, well, in my kitchen, um, recently, I'm all about reducing food waste. Yes. I've been uh, using coffee grounds for my herb garden. I've just got right outside my uh, my window. Nice. Um, kind of gives them a little bit of a boost of that nitrogen. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and just uh, like a lot of smoothies and hummus to use up like those B-grade fruit and veggies and stuff like that. Um, but I also, this week, I just, um, I started, at the, at the start of the week, I just started a stock bag. Um, and I just throw little ends and bits of onion and 
you know, celery carrots, like the little bits that, you know, I couldn't use or was too small or not, you know. Yeah, that's what right. I was going to suggest just, doing. Just pitch them, yeah, pitch them into the stock bag. And then I'd, I'd already planned to do a roast chicken that week. So mm-hmm. um, at the end of the week, I just threw everything in the stock bag into the Instant Pot. Um, and it's great because you can just set and forget it. And then, uh, yeah, I came up with a super awesome uh, chicken stock. I got about uh, four or five mason jars worth. Um and yeah, that's all stuff that I just would have would have tossed. And then of course, go and spend two bucks a bottle on chicken stock at the store. So exactly, it's not like it's not saving a lot, but you just feel a little bit better about what you're saving and um, that sort of thing. And and huh. uh, the, the bachelor I did, I had some leftover fennel in it. Added just like a really nice Ooh, little bit nice of to the uh, to the chicken stock. It's something you don't get in like a store bought. No, I love that, bought. and that's what we I've been working on here as well. Um, I've been trying to do it slowly and over time because <clears throat> I'm learning as I go. I mean, I, I just feel like I've, over time I've become that person where I, I wasn't very aware um, of the amount that I was actually getting rid of. Yeah, so- well, and that's something that I've tried to start doing um, recently as well. Is I So I write out my meal plan for the week yep. and then at the very bottom... Um, is another section for food waste. And I actually have been trying to track everything that I'm throwing out. So if it's like half a cup of veggies that I let go bad, it's not very much, but it adds up. And at the end of the week, you can kind of go back and see, okay, you know what? Next time I don't need to buy the five pound bag of carrots, uh, the three pound or or just as you need them will do. See, and this is why we get along because we're the same person when it comes to that. (laughs) Right. I, I love that kind of stuff because I do it as well. Even super type A analytical. <laughs> well, the um, you know the cellophane plastic wrap. Yes. So I went I've been trying to get rid of that. Okay, I just bought the beeswax wraps. Is that a bigo? Uh yes. Yeah, they're they're the beeswax linen wraps, right? Yes. Yeah, super awesome. I've been using those a lot lately. Okay, I just got them, so I can't wait to try them out. Um, do you find cl- cleaning them fairly easy? Oh, super easy. I mean, um, basically what I do, like I have a granite countertop, so I just like put them on the countertop and like scrub them with my dish scrubber. Yeah, yeah. But pro tip, do not run them under hot water. I think it says that probably on the box. Yes. Somewhere, but because it's beeswax, you can melt it away and like it'll it'll wear through faster. One more thing I want to squeeze in here before we wrap up here. Tell me. Um, I got a new knife sharpener and I've gone through so many different kinds, um, but you always hear... You got to have a sharp knife in the kitchen. Yes, and a do tell. Sharp knife prevents, you know. Yeah, yeah, because I'm looking for one. Slip and all that kind of stuff. So the one I found, and we're not getting paid for this. It's just my absolute favorite thing. It's mm. called the Spiderco Sharp Maker. I like the name. Uh, the only place mm. I found it is on Amazon. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's it's really cool. It comes with it's, it's like a little black base, and it's got um, angled slots for these uh, triangular shaped. Uh, sharpening stones and mm-hmm. what's cool about it it has it has 30 degree and it has 40 degree slots so when you when you put them in there the the sharpening stones are already angled mm-hmm. and then what you do is you just you uh, drag your knife you just keep it as vertical as you can and you just drag it first on one side then on the other and it creates that really perfect um, 30 degree angle I'll be honest I've ruined a good couple of knives just because I haven't been that great at like using a like using mm. a whetstone. I don't think a lot of people are really able to hold it at that perfect angle. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this kind of does that thing for you. So and it comes with like a little handguard, so you don't hurt yourself while you're while you're sharpening them. But uh, um, it comes with uh, like this 
uh, like a rough a rough grit and a fine grit and uh, it takes it to a razor sharp fine every time and it just like basically you just have to set your knife on that tomato and it just like that's eases it through skin you know and that's oh, always yeah. i don't know about you but the like slicing tomatoes is kind of my my mark for whether or not my knife is sharp because if you if you go to slide <laughs> it through and it's like pressing and like pinching the skin before it finally yeah me goes through, it's peppers it's uh bell peppers oh, peppers is a good one too yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you Absolutely. can cut so, through that. That's it. Yeah, so I'm loving my new knife sharpener. Oh, Frank's going to be happy now. Check it out. Well, that was interesting, exciting. Now I'm starving because we're talking about food and things that are happening in food. And we're talking about burgers. <laughs> of course, time to, <laughs> right? time to cut and go make dinner. It's that time. We've reached the end of another show. Be sure to visit kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. I'd like to thank producer and editor Matt Agnew, and I'm Mary Mamaliti. See you at the next episode.